Welcome to episode two of the Startup Sunday podcast. I'm your host, Cole Ruiz, joined by my co-host, Ben Haber. This week, we spoke to Drew Letterman, co-founder of Resist Nutrition. Drew and her co-founder, Emily, both struggled with their hormone health and couldn't find a bar that kept their blood sugar stable and didn't mess with their hormones. That's why they launched Resist, straight out of NYU, and embarked on a mission to make it easy to snack for balanced hormones and balanced blood sugar. Resist makes plant-based nutrition bars filled with hormone-supportive, naturally low-carb ingredients and a clinically proven low blood sugar response. We started the interview by asking Drew about when she realized she wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I feel like I fall more into the like accidental entrepreneur okay. group. Um, had a problem, tried to find a solution, then just didn't do anything about it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic happened and I was had a lot of free time and ended up just cooking something terrible in my kitchen and talking talking a lot about it and hoping somebody else would make a product like this and then started looking into the resources I had and figured why not give it a go what was that first thing that you made in the kitchen oh my god it was disgusting <laughs> I you know I wanted it to be perfect which that doesn't work with food you know like it's if you want it to taste good you have to like make compromises I wanted it to be a 20 plus gram vegan protein bar okay that's just gonna taste like shit. <laughs> um, it's just gonna be too chalky. Like to hide the taste of, or to hide the texture rather of vegan protein, you do need a lot of other things like nut butter. And so that's what I found really worked. Adding in more nut butter, adding in more fiber, um, adding in more oils really helps to make the texture better. And then that's just the baseline. Then you really need flavors because otherwise it's just gonna taste like nut butter. Um, and so then working with that and trying to figure out, okay, if I add in, because we didn't want to use anything artificial, yep. not even like natural flavors, because natural flavors are proprietary blends that are basically the same thing as artificial, but they're coming from gotcha. plant or animal sources, which can be many, many gross things, including like crushed up beetle shells and things like that, you <laughs> wow. know, so, you know, which give things their, you know, natural color and natural flavor. Yeah. Um, so obviously we don't want to use any of those things. So what kind of natural ingredients can we include that are really flavorful? Things like peanuts and goji berries and cacao, which are super flavorful and make, make it so that not all of our flavors just taste like almonds. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you came to NYU, attended NYU, intending to be an actor, yes. got a minor in business, were struggling with this, with this problem. How did you balance all of that? What was your, what was your time like as an undergrad? I was one of those crazy college students that had like a million jobs, did internships in fields that I had no business being in. Like I, like you said, started out as an actor. Kind of halfway through my acting degree, I was like, hmm, it seems like everyone else here is really enjoying themselves more than me. Maybe I should consider another career, which was totally crazy because I had been acting my whole life, really thought that it was what I was going to do with my life. And after a decade of doing it, I was like, should I let all of that training go? and all that time. And it definitely felt like sunk costs. Mm-hmm. So I, I finally made the decision to you know, cut my losses at that point and really got into journalism. And that was kind of my first touch with uh, food founders. So one of my journalism classes was a like dining and food class. So it was restaurant reviews, um, mm-hmm. critiquing, and also food founders um, and the food space and, and talking about um, 
packaged foods, which is exactly what I do now. So I remember on one of my very first interviews, I went up to Harlem to this commercial kitchen, which at the time I didn't even know what a commercial kitchen was. And I met with this food founder who made macaroons and I started interviewing him on how he made his business and why he made his business. And, you know, it just, I mean, not to say that he made it seem glamorous because he did not He was really realistic on kind of like how difficult it was, but I was thinking to myself, he's a jack of all trades. He uses all of these different skills that he's acquired to do this thing. And I really felt like a jack of all trades. At that point, once I was already in the journalism school, I was, I had done so many different internships. I'd worked at a travel company. I worked for a talent agency. I worked at a production company. I worked at like a food magazine. Like I just had all these weird little skills in social media, marketing, email, email newsletter writing, um, just like so many different things, research. Um, and it just, it seemed like I had the skills to be a founder where I felt like I didn't have the skills to, to do many other things because I was kind of one of those jack of all trades master of none. I wasn't like a you know, insane growth marketer or like a savant at social media. Like I wasn't going viral, but I had all these like little skills that I knew could come together to make something. And I was definitely, had. I've always been a very driven person, always been very ambitious and honestly kind of delusional. <laughs> like thinks, I think I can do anything. Like sure. I did a few scene shop classes in acting school and I'm like, I can build a dresser. Like, <laughs> you know, when, when that is like not necessarily the case, but I think being a little delusional, being really comp overconfident in yourself yeah. and like just trusting that like when, when something comes at you, you can handle it. Like knowing you're a good problem solver, I think is like the most important quality in a founder aside from confidence um, is problem solving. So yeah, that, that's kind of my path in school and using your resources, I think is one, my like number one piece of advice to founders because especially student founders, like even if you don't think your school has like entrepreneurial resources, get in touch with like a business professor and they are going to give you so many resources. So let's get to the Yeah, I think in my mind, it was still a hobby until we had that, what we considered success at the time, which was someone purchasing our product who had no degree of association to us. Okay. And at that point we were like, how did they find us? Where, where, who are they? Where did they come from? Like, you know, it opened up so many questions because, you know, at that point we didn't have any money. Like the whole thing was bootstrapped. Yeah. We, you know, using what little like savings we had, to kind of get it off the ground and at, at low budget as possible, we designed the packaging. We came up with the recipe ourselves. Like, you know, we, we didn't know how people were finding us. And yeah, so absolutely. attribution's like a big thing for us now. Um, and first party data and like just figuring out how we're getting into people's hands. Yeah. Um, and we're also, we're doing other more scrappy, no non-paid marketing sure. right now that is like on a larger scale. Um, but that that's, that's all to say, um, that like success, that the business really became a business once we started getting orders from other people. Like this wasn't just some hobby yeah. we were doing and you know, sending out to friends and family. Other people were buying our products and they were loving our product. So the second moment of like, okay, not only is this a successful, this successful idea or successful company, but like this could be like a, a 
big fucking deal for people, um, was when we started getting our customers sending us in their personal continuous glucose monitor data, which wow. if you don't know what a continuous glucose monitor is, it is a device for mostly like insulin resistant pre-diabetics diabetics to use to understand their blood sugar data. So how food is affecting their blood sugar and insulin. And there's companies out there like Levels or Nutrisense that um, work to give people who don't necessarily have a blood sugar problem and can't get a prescription to get them these continuous glucose monitors so that they can figure out how their body's reacting to food. And my co-founder always says this, her name is Emily, um, we're Bi-Coastal Founders, uh, and she actually, we met through NYU. She was finishing her master's in food studies at Steinhardt, and, and we met through the entrepreneurial Slack channel, wow. through the Team Finder chat, and definitely recommend that. But anyway, she always says that um, everybody deserves to know what's going on in their body. You know, like, we should all have access to affordable methods of figuring out what's going on in our body, like continuous glucose monitors, like things like the Aura Ring, like we deserve that. It's just difficult to get um, and it's expensive and it's really a privilege to be able to know what's going on in your body and that's why health food space is so premium priced. It's why we're premium priced. Like we can't afford to have ingredients or packaging at the quality we do without that premium price tag. Absolutely. But yeah, so that's all to say that when we started getting people sending us in their continuous glucose monitor data, showing that we keep blood sugar stable, we knew that we not only had a great idea, but that our, pro our product really worked. Yeah. And it worked outside of a clinical setting. So we ended up doing a clinical trial, um, which was such an interesting opportunity and like so lucky that we had connections in that space in order to like do that while bootstrapped because clinical trials are really expensive or can be really expensive. Um, but we were able to prove that we keep blood sugar stable in a clinical setting. But seeing that in practice, in real life, with people who don't necessarily have healthy blood sugar responses, insulin resistant, PCOS, diabetic, things like that, was like extremely rewarding. And we feel like, you know, I'm an Aquarius, if you like astrology, like Aquariuses really have like a drive to like do good in the world. And I think like that just made my day seeing that. So you said that the business really became a business when people started buying your products who mm -hmm. weren't associated with. Can you describe your first products and those, those first couple of purchases and yes. how that went? Yeah, so we did a pilot test, which I like definitely recommend. So that very first product that I said I designed myself and mm -hmm. it was like, you know, really homegrown, um, was a pilot test and we did that for six months and we tested the market, we experienced what it was like to be founders for the first time and we got feedback. We did over 150 customer discovery interviews. So through the NYU programs that we did, that's how we facilitated those interviews. I was gonna ask that, was that, was that a push from the entrepreneurship lab mm -hmm. to get that customer discovery? Yes. Yeah, they yes. talk a lot about that. And it's so smart. Yeah. Like, of course, because you wanna make sure that you have product market fit. And For like, sure. now we've definitely, definitely found that. We found our customer evangelist, we found like immediate product market fit, which is great but we didn't really know how to do that until we understood our messaging. So not only was this feedback around the taste of the product, the texture, the packaging, it was around like the way we talked about the product and who we talked about the product, who it was for rather. Like we were initially were talking about it just for women because when you hear the word hormonal health, even blood sugar health, I feel like, you know, most of the time women are more focused on their health than men. And especially when you're talking about hormonal health, men think that's for women. And we've even had conversations with men about this, but men are learning more and more about hormonal health and things like podcasts are really helpful for that. Like 
if you listen to Joe Rogan, I'm not personally a fan, but if you listen to Joe Rogan, he recently, semi-recently, brought on Dr. Shauna Swan, who wrote the yeah. book Countdown, which talks about how sperm count is declining at a rapid rate. And I think that really just got the ball rolling for men to start thinking about their own hormonal health and really the importance of what they eat and the products that they use for their hormonal health as far as sperm count goes. And I think that that was like a light bulb for them. We have Yeah, so to make any food, if you're getting anything that anyone's going to like ingest, um, you need to be in an FDA certified facility. Yeah. So this definitely makes it more difficult. Um, if you are going to, if you do plan to scale, and we plan to scale, planned at the time to scale, um, you need to either go to a commercial kitchen or a co-manufacturer. With a bar, if we wanted to go to a commercial kitchen, we would need to um, either change our packaging so that it doesn't look like this. It would need to be kind of like flat on all sides in order to do it in a commercial kitchen. Um, or we would need to go to a co-manufacturer. So we wanted to look standard. We wanted to look clean and like the other bars you see. And most bars you see don't have that kind of flat style packaging. Those don't even fit into the correct boxes to be on the side of the grocery store where protein bars are. So it would have really limited us in retail if we had gone that other direction and done it in a commercial kitchen. It also is extremely time consuming. And when we did the cost analysis, we realized that our time would better be spent scaling and working with a co-manufacturer wouldn't be that much more expensive, but it can be different for other brands. It definitely, there's so many pros. It gives you so much more control. Like we are a victim to the lead times of our co-packer. Like we absolutely, we can't do anything if we don't have product. And we've, we've had the problem where we've sold out and that's great. We're happy about that. But like, yeah, our, our co-packer's not going to get us product any faster, mm -hmm. um, which has caused some problems. I yeah. mean, especially with retailers, like we'll, we'll like sell out and we will still have product because we need to supply our retailers, but then, and our subscribers, but then we can't get any new customers. So while we are kind of fine, we're just plateaued. Sure. So, um, so yeah, inventory management has been an issue for us. Yeah, so we're omni-channel. Um, we're on Amazon, we're on our website, and then we're also in retail. Um, so it's like a B2B2C um, and, a B and a B2C. But, um, you know, it's interesting because there's also a lot of e-retailers. So that adds another layer. And everything kind of cuts into your margins in different ways. Um, and some act, honestly, as marketing channels in the beginning. So Amazon is not super profitable when you first start out because you need to spend a lot of upfront costs to get set up to send your product, then you have fees and deductions from ad spend and promotions. Um, and I definitely think if we could go back, I wouldn't have done any ad spend in the beginning because Amazon will deduct you if you, if you reduce your ad spend too quickly. So you have to reduce it over time, which means you're spending more over time even if those ads aren't converting. So that's really frustrating. Um, and then some e-retailers like Bride Market is a good one, um, Vitacost, like, those, we, we want to start getting into more of those as they provide kind of like, as if we were in a grocer, but it definitely fits more into like the 
2023 lifestyle where people are buying so much on Amazon, so much on these sites where they almost function as their own search engine. Yeah. Um, and search engine has been really great for us, but as a small company, we don't have as many backlinks as an Amazon. We don't sure. have as many backlinks as a Thrive Market. So if they are searching for something like our product and Thrive Market comes up, we'd like them to find us there, you know? It also gives us a sense of credibility. It's like, oh, well, they're in all these places. It's like, they must be credible. And I think in the beginning, it was hard for us to make conversions because our packaging did look like it was made at home, which it was. And like, that was why once we were able, once we sold out of that um, pilot test and reinvested all of that money, we were able to hire a design agency to help us out. So definitely made our packaging a lot more credible. Yes, it's direct to consumer. Um, we do have some offices actually that are on subscription. Okay. So some offices have emailed us and asked us for like special office, like reduced pricing. And we have like done that in those scenarios. We mm -hmm. also have offices who just order on a subscription basis every month. Mm -hmm. And those are some really profitable partnerships because they order a lot. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, so um, one of our biggest differentiators is that of what we, what we include and what we don't include. So we include a lot of adaptogens. We include healthy fats, fiber, and protein, which is the optimal ratio for blood sugar balance. Um, and then we include ingredients like adaptogens that are beneficial for hormonal health. So things like cinnamon is great for blood sugar health. Maca is good for hormonal health. You have cacao, which is great for mood. That's also hormones. Um, we use chia in one of our other flavors. Omega-3s are really great um, for a lot of things, but hormonal health is definitely one of them. Goji and cherry for antioxidants. Our, our last flavor is a peanut butter turmeric flavor. And we use turmeric, which is activated by black pepper um, for an anti-inflammatory effect. So yeah, we, we try to hit on a lot of different levels with the bars, but overall, despite each flavor kind of having their own functional benefit, we definitely, all of them, are going to keep your blood sugar stable. All of them are going to keep you fueled and satisfied for multiple hours, which is the whole point of a bar. And another differentiator for us is that we, I'll say this in a different way. So there's two types of bars on the market. You have the Cliff Bars, the RX Bars, the Luna Bars of the world, which are really high in carbs and sugar. They give you quick energy and a very fast energy crash. And if you've had an energy crash, what you're really having is a blood sugar crash. So your blood sugar's dropping and now you're tired. And that blood sugar spike and then crash leads to negative effects. It causes excess sebum production, sebum causes acne, and excess in androgens, which can cause also acne, can cause hair loss, and cause excess hair. Again, it's just messing with your hormones. Um, it can cause general inflammation, so it's not good. Um, that's why they tell cancer patients to stay away from sugar, because sugar is inflammatory. Um, and carbs turn to sugar. So that's one kind of bar. And then you have the bars that are made of artificial ingredients but have really good macros. So super high in protein, super high in fiber, really low carbs and sugar. The Quest bars of the world, the Builders bars of the world. So 
yeah, you're going to be full, um, but there's a lot of inflammatory ingredients, a lot of artificial ingredients like sugar, alcohols, gums, fillers, flavorings, mysterious flavorings, um, which are incredibly inflammatory and hormonal disrupting. They can also disrupt your gut. So a lot of sugar alcohols at their worst can cause like gut dysbiosis, which like that's really bad depending on how many you're eating. And at their best can cause mild gut discomfort. And in addition to things like whey, which can cause gut discomfort. So if you've ever had like, a Quest bar and been like, wow, I feel like I need to run to the restroom, um, that might be why. <laughs> oh. I, I'm always But one thing appears uh, I'm not gonna lie, that was also chewy. Good, but deep. Gotta become an expert what? in your field. Yeah. Go on podcasts. People are gonna be like, what do you think about XYZ? And then you're gonna be like, because uh, literally that happened to me at, on another podcast, and they were like, tell us about like pea protein and heavy metals. And I was like, you know, I I was like, I can't really tell you exactly what kind of heavy metals go into pea protein because that's not my expertise. And again, it was Emily wasn't on this podcast with me. But I can tell you about how companies are misleading when they say that they have heavy metal testing. Because when companies use ingredients, they can get testing and that's only on that batch. And then they buy another set of ingredients and another set and it's coming from another patch of wherever that was grown. So let's say for pea protein, you are using an ingredient and then you get your bars tested and it gives you a good rating. Your next batch, your next purchase order, might have really bad heavy metal testing results. <laughs> Emily's like, you're such an optimist. They definitely know. And I'm like, I, you know, like as a founder, you're thinking of a lot of things. So like you have to really trust the companies you're buying from to be taking care of you, which a lot of these companies aren't doing that. So you have to trust that, you know, that company is buying from a nice, good supplier. That's why, like, when you see a product that's more expensive, you know, the idea that it's better for you is not wrong. Because a lot of the times we, you know, for example, us, we use really expensive ingredients and expensive packaging. You know, it makes it difficult to reduce our price um, and still run a business, especially at an early stage where cogs are more expensive because our purchase orders aren't very big. Um, but with these larger companies, there's really no excuse, yeah. you know, and even then it's as easy as sending one email to your supplier and saying, did you third party lab test this batch? And most of the time they do, if you're with a good supplier, like you will find that they're, they're testing everything. They're sending it to QA and everything should go through QA, you know, because it's your responsibility as a founder to take care of people. Like I said, if you're consuming a product, it's. You have to take care of the people who are consuming it, especially after everything that happened with Daily Harvest. I'm like, did you, did you guys know about that? No. So basically, they released a product 
And they actually sent it out, this is what I've heard, is that they sent it out to some influencers, and the influencers, some of them were getting sick. And yet they still release this product, and they are a like fresh food company. They deliver food. Um, and people started getting sick to the point of hospitalization. Oh, no. Wow. And what the kind of industry consensus is, is that they didn't react quickly enough. Mm. The um, company. Yeah, to solve this issue. And I think it's hard because when somebody is having a health issue and you're only one part of their diet, you just don't know what else they've eaten. You know, is it you or is it something else? Is this genetic or is it some, you know, is it you? Like, you know, I, I can see why there was some hesitancy there because it's a, it was, you know, even if they had done it at an early stage, it still would have been a huge story. Mm-hmm. And I think that they made the wrong call, but I do understand as a founder that it's a tough call. But at the end of the day, like, they had That's enough. your responsibility. Yeah, you know? it's your responsibility. Yeah. They had enough information to kind of make a different choice there. Sure. And if they were smaller, I think they would have been more cautious. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. So I feel like I'm an expert in this. I'm actually talking to like the Tory Birch fellows at Gallatin about this in a few gosh. weeks. Um, basically, we didn't have any money. Now we have a little more money <laughs> and we're fundraising, so that's great. But now we have a little more money, but we, you know, every time we've gone and tested something for like $100, $200, it's like, it's never worked. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never converted the way that our non-paid marketing converts, you know, and we do so much organic content. Like being Gen Z founders is so great. Like being able to make TikToks, like two or three TikToks a day is like such a privilege. Like. That's pretty crazy. Um, so my co-founder and I are always making content okay. and like content out of nothing sometimes. Like we'll just like make shit up. Um, <laughs> like we're not doing anything that day, but it's like there's nothing viral going on. We're like let's just like talk about something. Let's talk about the business and like sure. people are into that. People like hearing about that stuff. Um, so content, 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 okay. all the time. And then touch points. So like once you have somebody in your pipeline touching them at different points of their journey is like incredibly important. So making sure you have a really long welcome flow for your emails is important. Like, you know, it sounds like a lot, but 12 to 14 emails in that flow. So it feels like you're sending out more emails than you actually are because you're a startup, you don't have time for that. So like putting it in that welcome flow really keeps them interested and reminded of you Mm -hmm. because it does take, I think it's like seven to nine times of hearing about your brand, seeing your brand, to actually make a purchasing decision if you didn't make it on that initial time. So that's really important. Working with influencers and affiliates is not the same as it used to be, Um, but I think it's still really powerful to work with the right people. So honestly, it's it's a lot, but sending out a lot of product and seeing who is converting and then running with them. Mm -hmm. Like we send the same three influencers products every time and we always get sales. And then we'll send it to like, other influencers, the lifestyle influencers usually do not work as well for us, and we'll get not a single sale. Mm. And they'll have 300,000 followers, you know what I'm saying? So like, it's great because we're not really spending that much money, it's just free product. Sure. But it's time, it's the cost of the product, so it's still part of that kind of CAC in a way, um, even though it's unpaid. But that's really important to test and just keep going with what's working. Um, and then setting up a, a good affiliate program so that people are excited. Mm-hmm. And then other brands and like outlets can help you with your um, 
with your marketing because they don't really want to take you on unless they can maybe get a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. At least these smaller outlets. Maybe with some of the bigger earned media, you can get, you know, get away with not doing an affiliate link. But a lot of the times, things, publications want some kind of affiliate link um, so that they can start earning commission if mm -hmm. people click their article. Mm -hmm. um, so earned media is definitely really, really big. And then cross promotions. So cross promotions are like definitely underutilized in this space. Other startups at your stage or a little bit above you, a little bit below you want to get more sales and they don't want to work that hard for it either. Like they're just like you. And if you can find people in your community, which it's so easy once you start going to events, like we've started just like finding so many cool founders mm -hmm. who are like in our space. Um, and we're able to do a lot of cross promotions because of that. Um, which is great because you can do at every level across promotion. So we did multiple TikToks, a blog, a newsletter, um, and an Instagram post around just one piece of content with six other brands. And that's a great cross promotion because then you've just gotten in front of their whole audiences and you've been specific. So like, let's say you don't have the money to do lookalike audiences on Facebook and target those people who are shopping at those places that you like, do this. And then you've just accessed their entire audience. You should definitely, make, I mean, you could start putting this on TikTok. It's like yeah. evergreen content is so smart. Like you could take a piece of long form content, find five really good nuggets of information in there, well, now, turn now all five this, into yeah. a blog, turn all five of those into newsletters, yeah. then make like 15 different like quotes to like put on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and then you have like almost 50 pieces of content right there. Blogs are also really great ways of free marketing yeah. because you just don't understand the power of SEO until you realize keywords that are underutilized. So yeah. like there are so many great resources for this, like answer the public is a great way to find out who is searching in your category. So like for us, if we want to know who's searching for things under insulin resistance or insulin resistance diet, that's really good keyword mm -hmm. for us. And then you see all the questions people are asking on the internet around these keywords. And then you take those and you turn them into a million blocks. <laughs> and then since nobody's really talking about insulin resistance diet, we're the first ones to come up. Now we're getting 300 clicks a month and right. that's like, 300 clicks we didn't have, you know? Right. So and it, it only took us like 30 minutes to make this blog. I mean, with ChatGPT and all these AI um, like blog creators, it's yeah. never been easier to do this. Right. And I mean, we could even do it more. I wish we were doing more blogs. Wow. Wow, that's a good one. Um, so I launched Resist with Emily right out of NYU. And I graduated in 2020. So like I said, this was kind of an, I was an accidental founder. I had a, I had a return offer at my internship. I was gonna go work at a talent, talent agency. And you know, hiring freeze, entertainment industry was totally on hold. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so this kind of came out of that. I started working as a freelancer and so kind of just did not expect this. So I think I, I get excited that I'm even here, like that this happened, that like, I feel very lucky in the sense of like, I think I'm so good at this or I was made to do something like this, kind of a multifaceted job. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and I, I find it just, it's an exciting profession to be in. It's always changing, it, and that's really hard. That's tough, but it's exciting. And like, it's exciting to talk to other founders. I love talking to other founders. I love even just me and Emily chatting about the business. It's so exciting to talk about like our five-year plan, our 10-year plan. I mean, again, maybe it is boring, I don't know, but I think, um, yeah, it's exciting to, I think the most exciting thing is just hold your product in your hand and know that you made something out of nothing. Yeah. That was not there before you were there. Right and yeah, I mean, and that we're helping people is huge. So she was here because, you know, we right. both went to NYU and she just finished her master's okay. in December. Okay. So yeah, fresh out of college, fresh does, out of master's. Does being headquartered in New York offer any specific advantages that maybe being headquartered somewhere else would? So any startup is most likely going to be uh, formed in Delaware. Okay. And everyone's got to be a Delaware C-Corp if you want funding. Okay. Um, but... You know, we have a cert certificate of authority in New York. It's mm -hmm. where our headquarter headquarters is. Um, and as a as a brand that kind of sells to everyone, it's also important to make sure that you have your permits and that you're you don't have a tax nexus in anywhere that you need to be paying taxes, and mm -hmm. and that if you do, that you're paying taxes in that state. It gets really complicated, honestly, from a business perspective of like handling all of those filings, it's definitely time consuming and can be kind of costly. Um, especially if you file late, don't forget to file. <laughs> Make sure that you put the right email. Yeah, tax season's like right me. now. <laughs> <laughs> because you'll be delinquent. And honestly, when we first started, tax is like a huge, huge thing for early founders that just like don't pay their taxes because they just don't know that they have to be. Mm -hmm. And so I thought we were collecting, we are collecting sales tax. And in the beginning we still were because Shopify will tell you if you have a nexus. If you've sold enough in a certain state, it will make you have, it will make you collect sales tax. But I thought Shopify was just collecting it and paying it for us. Little did I know, we were taking that money and that was going into God. our bank account. Okay. And then we had to pay it out to the state, um, which I'm sure all the MBAs are like, she's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I really didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's you, you'll be delinquent. I freaked out when they, when we had accounting office hours through the startup launch pad and he was like, Oh, you're super delinquent. <laughs> Your taxes are so delinquent. And I was like, um, is, are we going to be okay? Like, are we going to get shut down? He was yeah. like, just pay the whole thing now. It's like, Oh, and that's honestly how it goes for like a lot of tax things and filing things. Like we, um, didn't pay our franchise tax for Delaware in time, which is March 1st, everyone. Um, <laughs> and I was like, are we going to be okay? Like, yeah. are we going to, are we going to be good? And they were like, Oh yeah, just file now. Like, honestly, it's, it's kind of nice. If you, if you mess up, you can always get back. And like, that's a huge lesson like that we've learned as startup founders, me and Emily is like, almost every mistake you make, you can fix. And don't freak out. Emily likes to say control the controllable. And it's a really good thing to live by. Um, it's definitely helped our relationship as well as by Crystal Founders, um, where like, sometimes we just can't make it happen in the time that we're both on online mm -hmm. like a, for today for example like I was like god we have to go over our new packaging we need to go over our new nutrition back panels we need to like handle all these new partnerships we're doing and I was like it's not gonna happen today and she's like it's gonna happen Monday because because we're by coastal we only work together between uh, 12 and 5 mm -hmm. 
that's not easy. It's not a lot of time, especially when we build a lot of our, of our calls into that time, the calls that we need to be on together. So we have started kind of like dividing and conquering, um, which I definitely recommend. I wish we had started doing that earlier because there are calls that she just doesn't need to be on. And there's calls that I just don't need to be on. Like, mm -hmm. And again, I think separating roles as co-founders is really important. I think also having one person as CEO and another person as another role, like I'm CEO, Emily's the chief development. So we have separated those roles. Um, mm -hmm. She focuses a lot on growth and product and influencer partnerships, brand partnerships, marketing, email marketing, all that stuff. And then I focus on finance business um, and then a, a little bit of that stuff too. Um, because if not, you're gonna be arguing. Sure. And you need to like trust your co-founder to just like get it done um, and not be too, uh, you need to let go of control a little bit. It's hard to, to, to kind of take your hands off the wheel a little bit, but you know, that's, that's what it is to run a business. It's like, you're going to end up hiring people. You're going to need help. And that's, it's, it's really hard to ask for help when you're used to just doing everything yourself. But like, like I said, using your resources, asking for help, like you never know what's going to come of that. Like we've met so many cool people, founders, experts in the space that we never would have met had we not been like at the end of a meeting said, do you know anyone else you can connect us to? Mm -hmm. And this is so important in investor meetings too. Like, would love to connect with anyone in your network who you think would be interested in a project like this. Absolutely, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you want those positive connections. You, yeah, in, in this early stage, I think like, always take the meeting if mm -hmm. they're too late stage for you because it's good to make that connection now. Mm -hmm. But don't let them waste your time. Sure. Like, make sure those meetings are not an hour and a half long. Like, we spent an hour and a half on the phone with someone once, and I was like, we just lost an hour and a half to someone who, you know, is a good connection, but we didn't need all that time. They're not going to invest in us or wouldn't be able to invest in us until we're, like, Series A. Yeah. Like, don't let them waste your time is also really important. Okay. We just launched in August, so gotcha. pre-seed for sure, but we're post-revenue. Gotcha. Um, it's like an interesting fundraising environment right now. So when we were first thinking of fundraising was right after launch and kind of the consensus was don't say that you've launched, say that you're kind of like still launching um, because it's all about FOMO. It's all about like generating hype. Mm -hmm. And I think like a big part of that is like, you know, we didn't need as much help as maybe other brands. We couldn't like sell the dream as much because we had actual numbers. You know? Yeah. And your financial models will look totally messy once you've actually started running the business. Yeah. Like when you're kind of pre-production, pre-revenue, your financial model is going to look perfect because, you know, yeah. uh, but yeah. for us, it's like, you know, nothing looked perfect. And, you know, we had a lot more data to show and the data is always not going to be as good as you think, because no matter how many people say they're interested in your product, no matter how many people <coughs> sign up for your wait list, Business is all about separating people from their money. And are they actually going to buy? Mm -hmm. that's, yes. That's the plus. But it also yeah. taught us some things. It's like, you know, not everybody who signed up for our pre-order or wait list bought. But what set apart those people who did? And then we get to analyze those True. patterns. And I think becoming a more data-driven company, like both of us are not necessarily data or number people, but using those numbers in a creative way is definitely right up our alley. So finding out where people are buying, where they want us, where they're shopping, um, getting them to request us in certain stores helps us go to those stores and be like, look, you know, 30 of our customers want us in your store. Purchase us.
it's interesting. We're very opposite people. Um, she's like, I only wear black and you wear all these colors. And like, she's a pessimist and I'm an optimist. Um, we're very different. Um, but I think, I don't know if this answer is going to please anyone, but we both went to therapy. Yeah, I think being able to talk to like an objective person about kind of the struggles of being a founder, and most of the time it's just stress. It's like being a founder is a little stressful. Um, being able to, we both decided early on that we wanted to have a good work-life balance. And she often, like if I'm still emailing her and it's, you know, 6 p.m. her time, but 9 p.m. here, she'll be like, stop, get off your computer. You know, like we're, we're good about um, not pushing each other to extremes. Because yes, being a founder does require a lot of extra time and a lot of commitment and definitely can push those hours a little bit. Taking care of yourself is still number one and you don't want to burn out because, you know, we've had days where I've been like, you know, just ready to cry. Like, it's just so hard. And she's like, stop working. And it's 3 p.m. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to take care of myself now because at the end of the day, like it's, it's. The startup is kind of you when it's this stage. Like you are the startup. You and your co-founder are the startup. So if you start to lose it a little bit and you're not having fun anymore, what's the startup going to be then? You know, like it's much more important to maintain your mental health. And I think that's why we really don't have disagreements. Um, we do sometimes have like little kind of like tiffs, and it's like I have to be like I was hungry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and she'll be like, I, I'm sorry, I'm tired. And like, we are really good about apologizing to each other. I think it's like any relationship. I mean, even it's like being married, honestly. Like, you know, obviously I don't know what that's like, but I assume from what <laughs> sure. I've seen in TV shows and movies, like it, it requires a lot of compromise and a lot of trust. And, you know, it's it's a long-term relationship at the end of the day. And we've, we embarked on it as strangers, which is not normal. A lot of people go into um, co-founder relationships as friends. And I think we honestly made the right choice there because we started our relationship in a professional From sense a business perspective, with a lot yeah. of res mutual respect. And then we became friends. So take with that what you will. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think has been your lowest point in your journey with Resist so far? Oh my gosh. Okay, there were a few. There were a few. Um, yeah, okay, so our, I, I was telling you off off the recording that we had like a manufacturing problem mm -hmm. where you know you don't have a lot of power with your co-manufacturer when you're in the early stage so it's really hard to get them to sign co-manufacturing contracts so instead you sign like other agreements that don't really protect you um, if anything at all so our co-manufacturer replaced an ingredient of ours with a lower quality version and the texture just completely changed in the bar they just tasted completely different and to make matters worse, they printed our wrap, like they wrapped the wrappers incorrectly so that the bottom was getting a little bit cut off. So like one of our ingredients was a left, like you couldn't even read it. Like, and so, I mean, we were furious and we demanded returns and we demanded them to remake it. And they basically said, go fuck yourself. I hope that's okay if I say that's that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you don't have any power at that stage yeah. and it was our it was our second or third run mm -hmm. and we that was our also our biggest run because we'd had success and we'd already sold out before i guess we'll we'll roll out the carpet for you if you have anything else you want to you want to plug or add yes, or say for sure yeah follow us on instagram you can find us at resist nutrition same thing on tiktok and if anybody has any questions 
you can email me, drew at resistnutrition.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Drew. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks.